Well, good morning. How much headspace do you have? I'll fill it. Hey, if you're joining us online, I am glad you're here too. I'm going to fill your headspace too. Hey, if you notice on your seats, there are um, half sheets of paper. These are discussion questions related to the sermon. Our hope is that you just don't hear this, but that you apply it. The reason that, our, that is our hope, when we finished the Sermon on the Mount, the very last thing Jesus did was he gave a parable of the wise person and foolish person. And he said the difference between the wise person and the foolish person was not that they knew the Word of God, one applied it and one didn't. So we ask you to take these questions um, with a roommate, a spouse, a friend, small group, if you're in one, encourage you that, but with somebody that you talk these things through, and they're kind of discussion-oriented so that you'd be applying this and just not hearing it. And if you're online and you think, well, I didn't get one of those papers, Andy. I can't reach through the camera. Well, 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 you can get on our website. And these questions are under sermon discussion questions right there. Uh, you can find those. So I was 11 years old. School was out for the summer. And I had a little league baseball game that night. I was the catcher. And I lived for plays at the plate. I loved to cut off the plate and then bring the tag down and and that was just a real rush for me. But this one didn't go so well. Uh, the ball was loose, and the guy came home, and the throw came in high. And I stretched, and this guy dove, and he hits me right in the knee. And I, what I found out is my uh, knee opened for a second and then closed, and fluid came up. But it was swollen, and I had to be helped off. And the next thing I know, I'm on my way to the emergency room. And they take x-rays, and then you sit. You've been to the emergency room, you sit, and you sit, and you sit, and you sit. And I thought, did they forget me? I wonder if they forgot me. So I'm going to get up and, and, and go find somebody to make sure they didn't forget me. And I do, and I'm turning the corner, and some orderly is coming to get me and wheel me to something. He says, you sit down. You, could, you, you shouldn't be walking. And I just fell apart. I thought, this is a great way to start my summer. You know, am I going to be in a cast? Do I have to have surgery? What, what's, what's the deal? Well, I went to the orthopedic guy the next day. He pounded on the outside of my knee. It didn't give. He said, you don't have structural damage. You, you've got a little fluid there. You'll be, you'll be fine in a few days. But I won't forget that. Go sit down. It seems sharp. But there was a reason he didn't want me to do further damage by walking on what could be a very hurt me. Well, sometimes when I think about the judgment of God, it's like that, that orderly. It seems so sharp and so harsh, and we wonder, why? What's the point? We're going to talk about that today. So if you got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation 8, we're going to go through this passage and ask the question, what's God's goal in judgment? What's God's goal in judgment. Now, as you're turning there or finding it or whatever, let me kind of get you up to speed. We open Revelation in chapter 1, and we saw in the first two verses, this is a, John is getting, it's going from God to Jesus to an angel, giving John a vision, creating a message, uh, communicating a message in symbols. We talked about perhaps a uh, political commentator using a political cartoon because the images stick where words don't. But this is no, these images are not so we can speculate and put together a timeline and what about, how about when. No, these, these images are a prophetic word. We understand prophecy is instructing us particularly how to live. It does some foretelling, but more to the point, it, it's how to live. And it's, it's seven churches. 
that are living in difficult times. They're living in the Roman Empire about 90 to 95 AD. Rome is the world power unquestioned. And they have seen their emperor as God. They believe the the gods are mediating his blessings through the emperor. So he will be called Lord and God. And the Roman government of these seven cities has set up six temples, paid for six temples so people can go worship. They've subsidized five priesthoods, priests to uh, encourage the people and strengthen the people in what? Worshiping the elders, uh, the, the emperor. And, and the idea is we don't want to anger the gods by worshiping, by not worshiping them. And then these Christians come along and say, we're worshiping these Jesus, who, by the way, said he was going to be, he was bringing in his own empire and he was going to be getting the, the Roman rule someday. Jesus was tried in and found guilty on sedition, trying to overthrow the Roman government. So you're worshiping this guy who you say rose from the dead. That, that is problematic. In addition, um, each trade guild had their own god. So if you're a carpenter or work with metal, whatever, there's a, a god to your trade guild. And every so often we get together and we're going to have a feast with food uh, dedicated to this god. And what do you mean you're not going to be there? I don't know that you can work in this guild if you're not going to be, because we don't want to upset this God. Who's, who's, and so these Christians are, are feeling the pressure, and this word is stay faithful to Jesus, even though it may cost you your job, your family, and yes, even your life. And so in chapters 1 through 3, then God goes through and ad- addresses the circumstances of each church. This is what I like. This is what I don't. Some of the reports are positive. Smyrna and Philadelphia, very encouraging. Others are pretty stark and direct, like the church at Laodicea. And there's a whole range, and this is what's going well. This is what needs to change. Chapters 4 and 5, then, take John uh, into heaven and, and kind of give us a picture of what's going on in heaven, that, that God is being worshipped as, as he should. But obviously, that's not what's going on on earth. And so... A scroll is rolled out, but it's sealed with seven seals. Um, and again, this is in the Roman Empire when, it, when there was an official document. The Romans put a seal on it. And you, Joe, citizen, better not open that scroll because you don't have the authority to do it. And this scroll, written on both sides, has God's plan of salvation and judgment to bring heaven to earth, to bring earth into order. The trouble is there's nobody with the authority to open it. And John begins to weep. There's the plan, and it can be enacted, but nobody has. And then he hears of one who's worthy, and what he hears is militaristic terms, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, which again, talk about somebody conquering, but then he looks and sees a slain lamb. And the idea is Jesus conquered, and is conquering indeed, through his death. And, and that's a message for the church. You will conquer for God as you give up your life. So this, this persecution is in the plan. It will be moving God's plan forward. Well, then Jesus begins to break the seals in chapters 6 and 7, and the first four seals are directed at Rome, and it, it calls them out for their, their war and their conquest, and he said, it's going to turn in on you. You're going to have famine. You're going to have pestilence. And in fact, a quarter of the earth will be affected. Why just a quarter? Because God is hoping people will return. In his judgment. His initial judgment is not to destroy people, but to get their attention. The fifth seal is then broken. It's the voice of the martyrs crying out, What about us? We were found guilty. 
in human courts of sedition and blasphemy. And Jesus said, you will be found not guilty in heavenly courts. And then the sixth seal is broken, and that is the seal that brings us to the end times. The language gets apocalyptic. It's talking about upheaval of the mountains and earthquakes and all kinds of stuff. And it brings us right to the end with this question, who can stand before the judgment of God? And that takes us to chapter 7. There's an interlude in heaven, and God says, I'm going to mark my people. Back to Ezekiel 9 when he marked his people so they wouldn't suffer the judgment that the city was going to. God says, I'm going to mark my people. I'm going to set them apart from judgment. Not persecution, but judgment. Then John sees an army, a census, um, or he hears about a census. And these are militaristic terms again. 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 people each. Again, numbers that are symbolic. And a census was taken when the nation was going out to battle. That's what he hears. But then he turns and he sees this multinational people that have come through the tribulation. Not out of it, but through it. They've been deprived of food and hunger, and yes, even their lives. And this is the conquering army that God talks about. And that brings us then to the seventh seal, which is about to be opened. And we start with that in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What is this silence about? I think it's about a dramatic pause. Remember, John's receiving a vision, and this is to step back and let's consider what's going on. So we have this pause, silence. And John says in verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Trumpets were used in the Old Testament to sound the alarm, to get ready. We're about to go to war. Well, this is the sound of an alarm that God is about to bring judgment. Verse 3 says, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. This indicates some kind of offering. And much incense was given to him. Incense in the Old Testament was offered to God. Why? So that he might add to add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. The prayers of the saints are seen as an offering to God. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw that the lives of the martyrs were poured out beneath the altar of God. We understood that their lives were an offering to God. Now, these people asked for deliverance. They didn't get it on earth, but that didn't mean, didn't mean God didn't hear And God didn't answer the prayer the way they wanted right then, but he still sees their prayers as an offering. I'm wondering, do you see your prayers that? As an offering to God? When your prayer doesn't get answered, do you still understand God's hearing it? He considers an offering. And the smoke of the incense, again, the smoke was, was smoke offering to God with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. This is an offering. And now, now these prayers move God to action. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. Thunder and lightning are, are connected with judgment and an earthquake. 
These prayers have moved God to action, not in the timetable the people wanted. They wanted vindication right then on earth. God didn't give it to them, but he's going to now in judgment. Verse 6, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. We're about to hear the start of the judgment of the trumpets. Now, before that, I want to try and see if I can connect. Try is the operative word here. The relationship between the seals, the trumpets, and the bolts. And I've read bunches of commentaries on this. And I remember one guy say, the, uh, the exact relationship between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is imprecise. And I thought, buddy, you got that right. <laughs> Here's my best shot. Okay, this comes from a New Testament professor of mine named Craig Blombert. And the idea is this. We start with the seals, which we did last week. The first four seals um, targeted, I think, specifically to Rome. The fifth seal is the voice of the martyrs. But the sixth seal moves us very close to the end times. There's apocalyptic language there, a dramatic upheaval. And we think, what, the seventh uh, seal will just push us over the edge. But that's not what happens, is it? Seventh seal happens, and like Russian nesting dolls or uh, Google Earth, where you zoom in, we get the trumpets. And the trumpets back us up a little bit, not as far as we came, but we go over this way, and the trumpets sound, and we get a localized, targeted judgment. But we'll find out with the fifth and sixth trumpet, it takes us to the end, and we think the seventh trumpet, oh, that's going to push us over the top. But no, 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 no. We open that up. We get another set of Russian nesting dolls or Google Earth. We zoom in, and we get the bowls. And the bowls take us over. We don't go as far back as we did. And again, they take us up. And finally, the seventh bowl takes us to the end times. And so that's my best shot. There's some chronology, and there's some overlap in the seals and trumpets and bowls. And I think that catches it, this diagram though imperfect, catches it the best. Notice as we go from seals to trumpets to bowls, we, we approach the abyss. We're going to see more of the satanic. We're going to see with the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, which we'll get to next week, Satan and the demonic gets involved at God's permission in the judgment. So that's my best shot at trying to catch the relationship. Again, it's imprecise. But again, this is God trying to get the attention of humanity. Having said that now, let's talk about these first four trumpets. First one, verse 7. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now please notice, if you know your Old Testament, you know in the Old Testament Israel was held in bondage to Egypt and there was a series of 10 plagues that God enacted on Egypt so that Pharaoh would release his people. These trumpets parallel the plagues in Egypt. And this first trumpet parallels the seventh plague where God brought hail. And I'll tell you later why I think God and John are connecting the judgment on Rome and the judgment on Egypt. But there's no question there's a parallel here. So the first trumpet we got a third of the earth burned up, a third of the trees, and all the green grass. Okay, second trumpet. Here we go. Verses 8 and 9. The second angel sounded, and something like a great 
mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. In the Old Testament, the first plague God brought on Egypt was turning the Nile River, which was a god to the people of Egypt, into blood. It became useless. Well, again, he is affecting the sea and the sea creatures and the fishing industry. A third of that is destroyed. A third of the shipping industry is taken. That's the second trumpet. Third trumpet, verse 10 and 11. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and a third of the spring waters. The name of the star is Wormwood, taken from Isaiah 14, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. A third of your drinking water is taken. Again, this parallels the first plague that God brought on Egypt. So that's our third trumpet. We'll look at one more, the fourth one, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. So that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. A third of the earth is plunged into darkness. This parallels the ninth plague, which God brought against Egypt in the Old Testament. Darkness on the land. So let me, let me review here. A third of the earth burned up. A third of the trees all your grass. What, what does that do for your livestock? No grass. What does a third of the trees do for your fruit production? A third of the fish, what does that do for the people who eat off the sea or from the sea? A third of the shipping industry. A third of your drinking water, gone. And a third of the world plunged into darkness. Now look, if God just wanted just to exercise anger and bring judgment, why not take the whole world out? Why a third? He's trying to get people's attention. And what's he doing? He's taking the very stuff we depend on for life and we take for granted. Say, no, no, no. The food you got, the trees you pick the fruit from, the grass that feeds your livestock, the air you breathe, that comes from me. You know, we sit at home and we say, okay, kids, we're going to pray. And, and you know, we, we have this food on the table because daddy and mommy have a job. No, no, that, that's, that's, that's a step, but that's not ultimately why we have this food. We have this food because God provided. I'm a city kid. I thought your food goes at the grocery, goes at the grocery store, but apparently that's not true. No, Andy, I have my job because I went to school and I trained for it. No, why do you think you had the ability to go to school in the first place? Why do you think you had the air to breathe? Why, why? Everything you have, everything I have comes from God. And in our arrogance, we think, no, 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 no. It's me. What's God's goal in judgment? He wants to turn us from dependence on this world to dependence on him. Ultimately, everything you have, every bit of life is from God. Yeah, and the vehicle may be something in this creation, but that creation is of him. 
And in our arrogance and in our self-assurance, we think, oh, no, no, no. It's me. That's what was going on in the Roman world. They were all powerful, don't you? They were expanding. No one could stop them, and they thought they could do what they wanted. God said, oh, we're going to check that. You'll go as far exactly as I will allow you to go. Now, what's the connection between Egypt of the Old Testament and Rome? Several scholars have come up with this, and it makes sense to me. Both of those were godless, pagan, self-reliant empires. We're in control. In the Old Testament, when Moses says, hey, I want you to let my people go, and I'm going to bring a bunch of stuff on you if you don't, Pharaoh couldn't be convinced. Man, he suffered. His gross national product went down when God's bringing hail and taking livestock and ultimately taking lives. And the guy wouldn't be, he wouldn't be convinced. He was so locked in that he was the man. Rome's no different. Is this judgment about Rome? Absolutely. But God is moving Rome now into a category of empires that believe they are autonomous. And this will keep getting more general as we go through the book of Revelation. God will talk about Babylon, who is the Old Testament type for the city, state, nation that sets itself up against God. And God says to every one of those empires, you think you're in control. I will deconstruct you lest you recognize me. This happens in degrees where nations begin to think they're autonomous. Where are we on that spectrum? Now let's take it down to communities. Where are we as a community in thinking we're at? Let's talk about us as a church body. How are we living? Are we autonomous? Are we in charge? Or does everything we do come in line with God's work? Let's talk about us as individuals. Oh, Andy, of course. No, no, is every area of your life and my life submitted to God? So, before I was, we moved to Lincoln, I pastored a small church in Arizona and most of these people were 20 or 30 years older than me. Many of them were World War II vets. Um, and one guy in particular knew the scripture well. But he said, Andy, when it comes to forgiveness, I just can't forgive the Japanese. He had fought in the Pacific Theater. I just won't. And I said to him, Richard, you know the Bible better than I do. I can give you book, chapter, and verse on the call to forgive. I don't care. I said, okay, look, you don't answer to me. The judgment of people's lives is like way, way, way above my pay grade. But you're called to forgive because Jesus forgave you. Well, I'm not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> but you will answer to God for that someday. People in their dating lives think, I'm going to do it the way I want, and I understand the Bible, but I'm going to, you know, I know. Okay, okay, okay. You're your, let's, let's call it out. You are your own God. We talk about God has our time and our money, but I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, okay. But make no mistake, you are living as if you are your own God. See, we're experts at coming in here and picking and choosing what we like. 
But God said, this is my whole counsel. You bring your life under my authority because I am God. So as we think about this question and we're looking at, thinking about application and we're thinking this is first century and this is the seven churches and it's the Roman Empire, what do we think? It's, my question for you and for me is, what does God have to take away to get you to admit you're not autonomous? How far does God have to go to get us to recognize him and say we are in complete submission to him all the time? A thousand years or so before the book of Revelation was written, before the time of Jesus, a man named David served God, and God's spirit was among them, and David wrote the Psalms. And in Psalm 14, he wrote about the person who would recognize not recognize God. And this is what he said in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Do you know what God says about the person who says, I'm going to deny God, I'm going to live as if I'm in control? You know what God calls that person? A fool. And there's some really smart, really high IQ people in our world who deny God. God says, I don't care about your IQ. I don't care about that. In my book, you're a fool. Here's what's up with people who don't know God. For one, they're corrupt. You bet. If, if you don't have any accountability and you're all powerful, oh, you can do what you want. You're not going to answer to anybody. God says, I'm there. You know, I way every morning. I'm trying to get in shape. And somebody says, well, why do you do that? Because I need accountability for the food I eat the day before. And I'm thinking, I think, that looks really good, but I got to get on the scale tomorrow. I got to give an answer for this tomorrow so that affects my behavior hopefully today. We desperately need to know we're accountable. If people think they don't have God, they become all powerful, they become very corrupt. Second, they've committed abominable deeds. Right now, there is a war being persecuted, pushed in Ukraine. I don't think this man, Putin, believes in God. I think he believes he's in charge, and he decided he wants Ukraine. And he'll do all kind of stuff to get it. Little does he know that one day he'll give an answer. But on earth... For now, he's all-powerful, and he's doing all kinds of stuff. There's no one who does good. Idea of being who denies God. Because self comes at the center. So what does God think about this world where people set themselves up to be God and do their own thing? Here's what he thinks in verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. Here's what he wants to know. To see if there are any who understand, understand what? Who seek after God. Are there any who understand that they are not ultimately in charge? Are there any who are seeking God because they realize, I don't have the final word, God does. God's asking, are we there? And before we go back to our passage, I want to ask you, and I want to ask me, would God consider us a fool? Are we people who are intentionally seeking him? Are we people who are intentionally evaluating all we do, say, and think in light of God? 
Well, why do you ask, Andy? Because the people of Revelation in this vision have just lost a third of their earth and a third of their grass and all their trees and all their fish and all their shipping industry is gone and a third of their drinking water is gone and a third of their world is living in darkness. And verse 13 tells us they don't look like they're going to turn. Look at verse 13. Then I looked, John speaking again in a vision, and I heard an eagle, always an ominous metaphor in the Old Testament, flying him in heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. These three woes correspond to the three last trumpets that are becoming because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. And chapter 9 is about to get a whole lot more intense. Instead of the earth, God will begin to target people. And he will open the abyss and the demonic will come out and under God's direction or permission, not direction, or his permission, they will begin to afflict people. Why can't you learn? Why can't you understand after a third of all this stuff is taken, you won't turn from God? I pray we learn that God wouldn't have to go this far to make himself known in our lives. So when I was in high school, back in the old days, there were no personal computers. So we didn't take keyboarding classes, we took typing classes. Do you remember taking typing? And so you have to get, you have to learn the home row, and then you have to learn which fingers do this. And I'm right-handed, and so my left hand, the A is out here. I wasn't very good in the A, because that's my little finger, and I wasn't very strong. And these are the things I remember from my keyboarding class, you see. So you get your home row down, and you practice. And then about a few weeks in, do you know what the teacher does? Do you know what she does? She takes away our ability to see the keyboard. You got to look, but you look down, you can't see the keyboard anymore. You're supposed to know it. Well, that was a hassle, I've got to tell you. In the moment, my keyboarding speed and accuracy went down because I, I was, you know, I was always sneaking a look, but now it's not there. There's a cover over that thing. You can't. Why'd the teacher do that? She wanted me and the class to learn to type without looking at the keyboard. Now, just as an aside, I've got to say this because my, my wife is sitting out in the audience. When I, I didn't keep my typewriting skills, and when I got to seminary, she typed all my papers, so <laughs> I didn't do very well with that. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> but in the moment, this teacher took away the ability to see in the hopes that we would aspire to something more. God will take stuff from us that we might live in reality, that we might not be in his estimation a fool. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for us to recognize and live out the reality that Jesus is Lord? See, God doesn't do judgment because he's mad. He's bringing judgment so we'll stop depending on stuff of the world and start depending on him. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're challenged by this message from the book of Revelation. And we're seeing peoples and nations and kingdoms set themselves up in Lord and be their own God.
And the results are awful. You said they're abominable. They're corrupt. Lord, you didn't write this for entertainment. You wrote this to encourage your people to live differently. You wanted the seven churches to stay the course. And you're calling us, too, to stay the course. To refuse to worship anyone or anything as Lord, but to give you your due. Our food, our breath, our life, everything comes from you. Lord, that we'd learn this lesson and we'd live it out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.